Okay, uh, this week is um, is Parshat Noach, and uh, Parshat Noach, always a lot of fun, always lots of stuff to, to talk about. I know that at least one of you is probably going to say, oh, can we talk about Ham and the tent and all of that, um, but uh, this year we're going to do something a little bit different, and if you saw the source sheets, you know that it's not about Ham and the tent. Um, it's uh, about a curious little piece that gets overlooked. Um, and I'll just quickly tell you how I, how I kind of came to this. Years ago, I was uh, out of town for Parshat Noach as a scholar in residence. And I, I found the, the, the experience to be so pleasing that I tried to arrange to get invited every year out of town. This year it didn't work because nobody's going anywhere. Uh, because first of all, there's so much great stuff to talk about Noach. And second of all, because Noach's a very difficult partial to lane. So when I go out of town, I have somebody else does that for me. Um, but, uh, but, um, I, I was asked at the last minute, besides the regular scholar and residence things that I did, you know, Friday night dinner and the lecture, Shabbat morning drasha, Shabbat afternoon speech, Charles Sittas, to also give, uh, a short Chumashir before davening. And I was sort of asked at the spot. So I thought about it, and suddenly something occurred to me. And here's the result of what occurred to me. Um, there is Parsha Noach, uh, like almost every Parsha in Breshit, is so filled with big stories that often the little stories get overlooked. And the little stories, by the way, are not necessarily only one or two verses, they're just little compared in significance to the bigger ones. So, for instance, I've rarely heard a shiur about Esav's descendants, which takes up a whole chapter at the end of Ayishlach. Right? Uh, we hear a lot about ya Yaakov and the angel wrestling, but we don't hear much about Esav's descendants. Um, I've heard very little about Yosef's economic plan for Egypt, even though it takes up a good chunk of Parshat Vayigash, because there's so much else there about Yehuda's speech and Yosef revealing himself to his brothers, etc. So the same thing in Noah. Noah has the flood. Noah has the teva. Noah has Noah. Noah has, of course, Shem Cham and Yefet. Noah has the Brit. Noah has, I'm talking about the Parsha, not the guy. Noah has the story of Noah and, and the tent. Uh, and Noah has the recovenanting with man, with the Puravu component. And then Noah, of course, ends with the, with the, uh, with the tower. And if you really are chomping at the bit to get to Avraham, well, Avraham first appears at the end of Noah. And so there's lots to talk about there. And there's this little scene that involves two birds uh, that appears in the middle of the Parsha that often gets overlooked. So I figured this scene deserves some, uh, some attention. As you could see, it's all of uh, 14 psukim. They're here in Hebrew, they're in English. Hopefully you all got the handout. And then below that, all we have is kind of a structural analysis of the, of the piece. So I want to talk about it and kind of see what's going on. Now, it's a critical methodological point. Whenever you're studying any narrative in Tanakh, truth is any narrative anywhere, you, will, um, you have to become super aware and super unaware at the same time in order to successfully read. You have to become super aware of the context of the players. You have to, as if possible, walk in the shoes of the actors in the story. You have to be Yaakov 
on his way to Lavan and we no idea what's going to happen when he gets there. All right, so you, you have to be Yaakov running away from the brother, etc. You have to be Avram going up to the top of the mountain with your son, thinking that you may come down alone and you're going to have to face Sarah without Yitzchak. You don't know what's going to happen. So what I said there was actually both pieces. You have to put yourself into their shoes, but you also have to erase what we as the reader know. So we as the reader know the future. We know that Avram is not going to kill Yitzchak. We know that the, uh, the Avram we stopped. We know that uh, that, uh, um, that uh, Yosef's not really missing, etc. But we have to read it as if we don't know. So we have to become super aware and super unaware. Super aware as if to put ourselves in the past. And as a result, super unaware of what actually the future holds. So um, we have to put ourselves in, in Noah's shoes here. Sandals, whatever you want. Probably barefoot on the, on the boat. The, it's been raining for, for days. The water has gotten so high that from the perspective of the text, there is no landfall, meaning you're above all the mountains. Now, does the ark ever get over to the Himalayas? Are we talking about the Sierras? No, we're talking in the Middle East, but the ark is above all of that. What happens when the ark finally, when it stops raining? The flood is not over. Ask anybody who lives in Houston or in the Mississippi Valley. The flood is not over when it stops raining. When, when is the flood over? The flood is over when the water has receded to a manageable point. Manageable point is a very subjective question. There's a manageable point when it's gone low enough that you can drive your car through, low enough that the levees will now keep the water in the river, low enough so that you can climb into your house through an upper story window, right? Or low enough that the water will no longer be seeping into your basement. What's low enough, all right? So that's a piece of the puzzle. Now let's see what happens when, when we're gonna go, in this partial, we're gonna go from uh, essentially the end of rain to the end of the flood. We're gonna watch how that plays out. All right, I'm gonna read it in Hebrew. You have it there in English. I hope you all got copies so you can scroll up if you want. One word, one note about this Vayiz Kor. And by the way, this is a, a, a passage that we invoked a few weeks ago on Rosh Hashanah in Musaf, God remembering Noach. It's among the Zichronot. What does it mean? So it implies that God forgets because you remember something that you forgot and then it reoccurs to you. Uh, it's something that philosophically and theologically we would be hard pressed to associate with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And as a result of that, what the likely way to interpret it is that God now put his attention towards Noah and all of the animals that were with him. So he made a wind blow that pushed the water out. But that's not enough because remember the flood was above and below. Important note, and a side note, but a worthwhile one to pay attention to this week as you listen to the parsha, is that the flood story is a direct and sequenced reversal of the creation story. You look at the six days of creation and you watch the flood and the flood essentially backs them up to at the end of it, the apex of the flood, day and night are no longer distinguishable. It's a, a backup. And now it's like starting again. So you have to remember, 
that the flood was not just rain, it was also an opening up of all sorts of underground aquifers. And so what happens? All of the underground springs closed up. A secher, by the way, in modern Hebrew, is a dam. The windows to heaven closed up. So both apertures that were putting water into the world closed up. This is how God stopped the flood. And that was the end of rain. But again, we're not out of the woods. And so the the water came over the land back and forth. And the water lowered, and it took another 150 days for the waters to lower, which means 40 days of rain, and then another um, uh, nearly five months of just water receding and slowly getting saturated into the earth so that it goes down. So in the seventh month, and it's unclear what seventh month means because there's, there's nothing to count from yet. So does it mean the seventh month since the whole episode started? The seventh month counting from Nisan, counting from Tishrei, it's famous Machloket. On the 17th day of that month, Al Harerarat. Harerarat we associate with somewhere in Turkey. Okay? Now, the, the ark hit land on the 17th day of the seventh month. What does the hit land mean? It means the hull, which is a very deep, it's a very deep ark. It's got multiple levels. The hull finally hit some earth. But that means that the water is still way up above the mountain. But the, now the depth of the ark was able to had lowered itself to the point where the bottom of the ark finally was able to hit a high mountain and it parked there and it waited there for another three months. Um, so it was now the first day of the seventh month of the tenth month, which means two and a half months later, Now you could see, but the the, the word Niru is a tricky word. The tops of the mountains were visible. Now they'd only be visible, of course, if you were out there. Nobody's out there, and there's no way to see it because the ark is totally sealed because it was essentially underwater for part of the time. Not submerged, but underwater. And so now there's another 40 days, another 40 days. He opened up the window. A window is not glass. There's no glass. A window means there's a block. So so after they landed, um, they stayed there for that amount of time. From a bird's eye view, the water had receded to the point where you could see the top of the mountains. But Noach waited another 40 days and opened up the the window. Okay. Now, he sends the raven. Why does he send a raven? Why does he send a raven out? Why does he send any birds out? Why does he send animals out? He sends a raven. Why a raven? Right? And the and the raven goes back and forth until the water is is gone, which means un, well, during this whole time, the raven is still circling and coming back, circling and coming back. What did Noah learn from the raven? It seems like he learned nothing. 
And now by he sends a dove or pigeon. We'll call it a dove, sounds nicer. Um, why is he sending a dove? And if the raven wasn't good enough, why a dove? What's that about? To see if the waters now had become lighter on top of the, the earth, meaning the low level of the earth. Very famous line because it in, is internal, is in, it, it's turned it's turned inward on one of the Zmirot of Shabbat, Yona Matzabo Manoach, right? Which means the dove did find rest. The Midrash is that the, the, the Yona was out for the six days and on Shabbat never, it didn't find rest because during the week, on Shabbat it found rest. The Yona did not find anywhere to put its feet. Now why, why, isn't the raven good enough? You saw the raven kept circling. Why are you sending a dove? And the dove came back because there was still water over the whole earth. And so Noah puts out his hand to get it. And he brings the Yonah back into the Teva. Okay. Now notice that this whole story is made up of a little action and a long wait. So on the seventh month, boom, the ark hits. Wait two and a half months. Then open up the, uh, then the, the, the mountains are visible, but not to anybody here. Wait 40 days, boom, open the window, fine. Send the, the raven, no help. Send the onah, the onah comes back and, um, and he, he brings it back. So it's like these actions that we don't know over what length of time they're taking place with these single actions. But now we get one time frame. So after he had sent the Yonah out and the Yonah could not find anywhere to rest, he waited another seven days. By Yosef He sent the Yonah out again. Now, wait a second. The raven gets one shot. The dove gets two shots. The dove's going to get three shots, by the way. Why? The Yonah came to him in at the evening. And it had an olive branch in its mouth, which has been turned and tortured in imagery since then, but had an olive branch in its mouth. What did Noah now know because he saw an olive branch? That the water had lightened. What did he learn from the fact that there's an olive branch? And by the way, based on this, it should be that we've now solved the story and we now know that the water is low enough and now time to open up the Teva and let them go. No, that's not what happens. He waited another week. What's he waiting another week? What, he loves hanging out with all those animals? He's not eager to get them open up and get them out? And, and on, a, on a little more uh, poetic level, he's not eager to restart life? What's he doing in the Teva? He sent the Yonah, and the Yonah did not ever come back to him. So wait, why did the Yonah come back with the olive branch? They wait seven days, sends it out, and the Yonah never comes back. Why not? So now we've gone all the way to the first month, which tells us the span of time of all this bird stuff was about two months. 
little less. The water, charvu, that's a different word, have dried up. He opened up the cover on the teva, and he was able to see that the earth was dry. Wait, didn't he already open the window? There seems to be a lot of repeated actions here, or a lot of sort of two-way actions that seem to be versions of each other. And now it's almost two months later, the land is actually dry. So what's happened here? So we have really two questions. One question is, what's with these two birds? Why send them out in the sequence? And second thing is, what's what's his aim and what did he learn? What was the process that was happening? So, and I know that's not necessarily the most inspiring of things, but it's critical to know that if we want to accurately read the narrative of Tanakh, whether it's a narrative about Moshe and Aharon coming to Paro, whether it's a narrative about Gidon and his father facing off against the townspeople, or whether it's a narrative about Noah and the Teva, which is very otherworldly for us, but we have to read it as if we are players in the story. Okay, you're Noah, you're in the Teva, it's been raining forever, now it stopped raining, and your, your boat was still going around for quite a while, and then finally it hit land, which means, you're smart enough to understand, the water's starting to recede, it's receded enough that the bottom of my boat hit land. But of course, that's not going to help, because I, I need to wait until, what? I need to wait until... The bottom of the earth, not the top of the mountains, the bottom of the earth is dry enough for the animals that I have to be able to go out and reestablish their lives, including animals that are not mountain animals, and therefore animals that subsist on things that grow in low areas. Evidently, I've got enough of that stuff on the boat for them, but I can't let them out until they can find it in its natural habitat. Evergreens will not grow in a valley. And olives will not grow on a mountaintop, on a high mountaintop. We've all been to the mountains. We all know what kind of stuff grows above 7,000 feet, next to nothing. But what kind of stuff grows about four, above 4,000 feet? What stuff kind of grows, grows above 2,000 feet? And what stuff you need to be near sea level to grow? Okay. And remember, we're talking about it like a huge tub that's slowly emptying out, which means that there may be dry land high, it's not dry land low. Let's start with this. He first sends out a raven. Why does he send a raven? What do we know about a raven? So in order to answer that, even though we already know it, I want to go to Tanakh because why not? So if you look at the very end of the source sheet, I have one passage that's not from our text. Everything else is passages and we shown him from our text. And one passage not from somewhere else. And the story is Eliyahu. Eliyahu Anavi declares famously that there's going to be a drought because of the Baal worship, because of Ahab's sins, there's going to be a drought, terrible drought. And after he announces the drought, God tells Eliyahu that he should go somewhere that God has prepared for him, where he will be taken care of during this time. Chapter Passage 4. More of this is near the beginning of Perak Zion, the very beginning of Pirkei Eliyahu, where Eliyahu shows up in the story. I want you to go from where you are and go east. 
to Nachal Crete. Nachal Crete is known as Wadi Yabes, is a ravine which is just to the east of the Jordan River, uh, below the Kinneret. Right, and it is it's associated, by the way, with the area known as Gilad, which is where Eliyahu comes from. Remember the song Eliyahu Ha Giladi, which is why the reigning opinion is that Eliyahu was himself from Shevet Gad. That's the tribe that lived there. There's other opinions from Shevet Benjamin, from Shevet Levi. All right, and he says, go from go east from here. Vayame Anachal Tishteh. That ravine will have water, and you will drink water from there. And I've commanded the ravens to feed you. The ravens. So he goes there, like Hashem said. And he goes and settles at Nachal Crete. And the ravens were bringing him bread and meat, bread and meat in the morning and in the evening. There's a famous Agadah, they're bringing meat from Ahab's table, which raises a whole lot of other questions. But why are ravens bringing him meat? Well, the simple answer is something that you already knew. Ravens are, are uh, scavengers. Ravens eat carrion. Okay, we know that. The ravens are not only birds of prey, but they eat carrion, including human carrion. Okay. You know, Noach's really smart, or shall we say he's had a long time to think about this. They've hit the mountaintop. The water has slowly receded to the point where you can open the window and you can see now the sky and it's not raining anymore. What's the first thing Noach wants to find? He wants to find out how low the water is. Okay. Now, what do we think happened when it started raining? And it's easy for us to picture because almost every summer we see at the end of the summer, we see uh, pictures of this on the TV, aerial photos of this from somewhere in the Mississippi Valley or somewhere in the South. What do we see? We see tremendous rains. And then what are the pictures we see from the helicopter? People climbing up to where? To their roof and standing on the roof and waving and hoping to be rescued, right? You see those pictures? Okay, what do we picture happened in Noah's time when it started raining? Where did everybody go? So we assume everybody tried to find higher land because the water's coming up. And they probably went to higher land and higher land and higher land. And finally, when they got to the highest that they could climb, they, got, they, they died. Which means what should be there when the water recedes? There should be a lot of carcasses there. Now, the raven has been in the ark, or right, because the birds came in also. Raven's been in the ark for a long time. The raven would certainly enjoy having some good carcasses. So what does Noah do? What's the first thing he does? He sends a raven out. If the raven doesn't come back, what do we know has happened? The raven found some meat to, to feast on. It's not a pleasant picture, but what does it tell Noah? It tells Noah that the water has receded below the tops of the mountains and the dead bodies are now visible. So that's step one. Guess what? The raven keeps coming back, which either means nobody made it to the top of the mountain, the mountains are not yet exposed, not likely, or maybe the bodies got washed down, or maybe they're just so wiped out 
that they're inedible, but the raven can't find anything. Okay, so that didn't give me any information. He now said, but he, but his sense is that the water is receding. So who does he send out next? He sends out a dove. Why does he send a dove? What do we know about pigeons? We know a lot. Those of us who own cars know a lot about pigeons. What do we know about pigeons? We know that they nest. They nest. And they nest typically in relatively low trees. Since they nest in relatively low trees, that means that he's going to be looking for a low tree which is exposed where he can rest. The first time Noah sends out the bird, what happens? It could not find any rest. And therefore, it, it comes back to, to, to Noah right away. It's got nowhere to rest. So he now knows that the water level is still higher than the lower trees. We'll call the water level at 2,000 feet. Okay. He now sends the... Um, uh, he sends the... Um, um, he waits seven days and he sends the Yonah out again. What happens that evening? The Yonah comes to him and what does the Yonah have in its mouth? An olive branch. Nice, beautiful, okay. But what actually, what's the information that, that Noah's getting? That olive trees, A, have made it through the flood. That's good news. That olive trees, which are low, you will not find olive trees in high mountains that olive trees are now exposed and it was able to get an olive branch, which means the water level now is below, we'll call it 2000 feet. Maybe a little higher than that, but, but certainly not at six, 7,000 feet. The water level is lower. But why did the Onak come back? See, we look at the olive branch as the positive thing. We have to look also at what's missing. The Yonah came came back because it could not nest. Why could it not nest? Because how does Iona nest? It builds a nest. What does it build a nest from? Twigs. Where are the twigs? On the ground. The ground is still either underwater or soaked, and you can't build a nest. So Iona comes back. What now happens? He waits a third time. He waits seven days. And he sends the Yonah out, and the Yonah never comes back. What does that tell you? The twigs are accessible. The Yonah was able to nest. And the Yonah was able to build a nest and stayed in the nest and never came back. It doesn't need to come back. It's got its own spot. It also means, by the way, that whatever pigeons eat, the little wormy things, are now available on the earth. So the, the dove is able to live. Why does he wait um, another little while? before he opens the cover because he has to wait for the land to dry out look at the two different words um earlier it says uh yavsha haaretz actually but at the beginning but at the end of it it said it says yavsha haaretz he says vayar hine charvu in verse 13 meaning that they become like dry, not just not wet, not, not rainy and soaked anymore, but they've actually dried out. And then you have Shaharis, the land is fully dry. And now he opens the thing and lets everybody out and we're ready to go. 
it seems like a little bit of a mundane exercise. And it's certainly not among the more, um, among the more, should we say, inspirational pieces. But what we have here in, uh, in this text is, um, is um, an example of this phenomenon in narrative. And we can, if it, and the value of it, besides understanding the text, is the more that we study in this way, the more we put ourselves into the narrative, and the more that we can empathize, at least sympathize with the characters in the narrative, identify with them, and internalize some of the struggles that they were dealing with, which becomes a critical piece once we start next week in Parsha Lechlecha with our family. And we go with Avraham, etc. And that as that story develops. Now, Dovi asked an interesting question. There's a lot of switching between Eretz and Adama here, right? So let's take a look actually how that at, as, at how that plays out in the text. If you uh, if you take a look at uh, verse three, right? Because there's actually a, a a system to this, okay? The, the water had start, starts waving over the land, like Mashiv. Okay. And then uh, we get to Pasuk um, Zayin again, above from of the land. Okay. However, in Ched, it's So what's the difference? Ha'adama is the land, meaning the ground level. That's Ha'adama. Ha'aretz is like a generic statement about the earth. Has, is the earth rid of its water? But Ha'adama is actually, we're talking now in farming terms, is the land accessible? So if you take a look at Pasuk Tet, you'll see, again, Ha'aretz. By the way, you see, it's always on the face of the, of the land, there's still water on the earth. And then uh, in uh, in Pasuk Yeralith, again, he knows that the water has lightened up. There's less of it now. And then when you take a look in you bet Yud Gimel uses that again, but at the end of Yud Gimel it is because what we're now concerned with is what is the ground level like? That's Adama. When God created man, he created a farm minha adama. He created him from the adama. We talked about that last week. The aretz is the world. The adama is the land, right? And so therefore the final statement is the world is now dried out. The world is a kind of generic thing. It's supposed to be talking about the specific land. So hopefully this gives us a better sense of what's going on in this story and be able to read it with a little more sensitivity. And again, the critical piece is we understand the story so much better when we put ourselves into it and we erase what we're not supposed to know because we're either not familiar with the way a story ends or it, conclu or it continues or what commentaries have to say or anything else. All we know is what the character in the story knows and that really gives us a better insight into what's going on.